podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred D. Taylor. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. This book blew my mind. Yeah, it's so good. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, let's just just get right into this because I think there's going to be a lot of gushing going on and I want to have plenty of space for us to gush about this book because I think that we both loved it. (laughs) Um, And there's also just a lot to talk about. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. This, this one, this is a classic. Yes. In every sense of the word it, and a great way to kick off this month of historical fiction. It feels like, you know, such a departure from the land of fantasy that we were just in and what an amazing reminder of the breadth and scope of children's literature and how much good stuff there is out there. So yeah, I, I absolutely loved reading this book. Well, I'm excited to hear about your thoughts about this reading experience and any past reading experiences, but let's just share a quick summary with everyone before we get into that. So Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry was published in 1977, and it's Mildred D. Taylor's first book in the Logan saga. It follows the coming-of-age story of nine-year-old Cassie and her three brothers as they confront racism and poverty in rural Mississippi during the Great Depression. As landowners, the Logans stand apart from the rest of their black sharecropping community, but this only makes them more of a target of nearby white landowners who resent them. Intertwining plots follow the Logan parents as they lead the community away from the white-owned general store, the children as they attend school and help their parents tend to the land, and the family unit as they unite in love, courage, and pride while the world attempts to tear them down. Beautifully written, Taylor's story of survival is closely based on her own family who migrated from rural Mississippi to Toledo, Ohio, but kept their stories, values, and legacy alive by passing them on to her. The dedication reads, to the memory of my beloved father who lived many adventures of the boy Stacy and who was in essence the man David. I, okay, that's a beautiful summary, Chelsea. (laughs) It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. And I didn't realize until you brought this up how influenced this was by, um, Taylor's own own life. And you can really, you know, you can really feel that, I think, in the compassion and care she has for her characters. I'm I'm noticing that that's something I really love in in Kidlet is just the um I don't know, just the delight that authors take in bringing to life the interior lives of children. And you really see that in this one, even though it's dealing with really hard things. Yeah, we'll share a link um, that goes into a little bit more of Mildred D. Taylor's background. And she 
has specifically talked about and very intentionally talked about how her father was so influential in writing this book and the full series. And in her Newberry acceptance speech, she thanks him and talks about the power of hearing his stories. And I think that, I mean, the storytelling in this book, the book itself and the stories within the story are so moving and just so well-written and, and lovely. And you can just I agree with you. It you can just tell that it comes from a place of personal history. And yeah, so we'll we'll share that link so you can see how Mildred D. Taylor connects these more to her family's history. But it is, it's not an exact like retelling of her family's history, but it is very closely inspired. And I think what you can really see is the characters are based on her family. So the events might not be perfectly in line with exactly everything that happened with her family, but the characters very much are. And particularly, I think reading that dedication made me pay special attention to um, Stacy and to David in a way that I might not have paid attention to them as much if I hadn't really latched onto that as dedication. A- as a woman reader with a little girl thinking about reading it to her, like I very much kind of connect. And of course, Cassie's our narrator. So mm-hmm. connected with, with her, but the, the male figures and the, are they're, they're breaking the mold in a lot of ways. And I just, I love seeing kids with good parents in, mm-hmm. in fiction, because I think, you know, in our fantasy worlds in our, like in fantasy literature, being apart from or not having parents is such a kind of distinct part of that. And next month we're talking about orphans (laughs) and troublemakers. Mm -hmm. And so I I really love the family dynamic here. And Catherine called Birdie, the parents are very involved in that narrative as well. So it is interesting that the historical fiction, realistic fiction books that we've picked have parents included. And I think that's something we can, we can analyze and talk more about. So I'm very excited for that. So Sarah, we'll talk about this family a lot, but first I want to know if you read this as a kid and if you remember anything from your experience then, and then compared to now. I did not read this as a kid. This was my first time reading this book. Really? Oh, I love that. And I, I know why. (laughs) Um, I was an extremely sensitive kid and I had a strong aversion to sad books. Now there are a couple of exceptions that probably like managed to cross my filter and then I ended up really enjoying them, but like books like Bridge to Terabithia, I never read that as a kid. And when I, um, was going to purchase Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. The the copy that I ended up purchasing on Bookshop is a new cover. It's an illustrated cover. Um, and it's a much more inviting cover. The I don't know if you remember the cover copy with the fire and the kids. Mm-hmm. And I I know that little Sarah was like, uh-uh. <laughs> that, yeah. That book looks <laughs> sad and scary, and I'm not gonna read it. And I, um, I mean, I don't have any like regret or like 
shame towards little Sarah for like averting or avoiding that book on my own. But I do wish that I'd had a teacher or an adult in my life, like read it with me or, Mm -hmm. you know, build it into the curriculum. Cause I, I think this book probably would be tough for many kids to read on their, on their own. Um, not saying they shouldn't, but totally should, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I, I, that's, I remember really like coming across this and knowing that it was one of those books that kids who loved to read read and just being scared of, of it. Not because I thought it was scary, but because I knew it would create some big feelings. But this book, this book is terrifying. It is. It is. This is maybe one of the scariest kid lit books I remember reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it was really scary to me reading it as an adult, as Mm -hmm. it should be, because it's about horrible acts of racism and like just terrifying children and families. And so, yeah, it is, it is scary. Um, I remember reading it maybe in sixth grade. I can't remember exactly which grade, but I do remember reading it for English class. And I don't remember if it was a full class book or if it was like a reading circle book, but I do remember reading it. And I just, I don't remember the conversations in class or anything else around it. I just know that when I was reading it now, it felt familiar. Mm. Um, And I could, you know, pick up on certain scenes that I, I just knew, oh, I've read this before. Um, but my goodness, I feel like I got so much more out of reading it now as an adult after having more history classes, after reading more, um, nonfiction about the time period, after reading more books by black authors, um, I I definitely think that this is so worth picking up again as an adult or for the first time as an adult. I do not think that this has to be classified as children's literature. I completely agree. This could very much be classified, in my opinion, as an adult book with a child protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the not just the the themes and the history, but the writing is mm-hmm. not inaccessible middle uh, middle schoolers, but there's enough to appreciate in it for adult readers for sure. Um, I don't understand why this book hasn't like t- replaced To Kill a Mockingbird in like every school curriculum. Same. Even, and and the thing is, I know a lot of people read To Kill a Mockingbird in ninth or 10th grade. Right. This could be a ninth or 10th grade book. Exactly. It does not have to be lower middle school. Right. It, in fact, I, yeah, I think ninth and 10th graders would get so much out of this book and it would set up so many things that are to come in the curriculum in terms of history and, and literature. Um, maybe it, I mean, maybe it is taught in some, some freshman English classes. I would love to hear from our listeners if, if you all have taught this book or have had kids who read it, uh, in school, like what grade that happens in. Um, but 
yeah, I just could not get that out of my mind because in, in my mind, it's very much that kind of classic where like people do, don't really refer to To Kill a Mockingbird as a children's book, mm-hmm. even though it has a child. It, and I haven't reread To Kill a Mockingbird in a long time, so I can't say mm-hmm. that I liked this one more, but I just, it was much more resonant <laughs> mm-hmm. the, from what I remember. Well, and a big part of To Kill a Mockingbird is like the father figure of Atticus Finch. Right. I, David. I like David yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there just are many similar parallels. themes of justice mm-hmm. and, you know, how do you, how do you seek and the difference between justice and revenge and retribution. And I, there, there are so many wonderful things that this book is doing. And I don't, I, you know, it's, it's always a complicated thing to put a, you know, classic by a author of color, in this case, classic by a black author, mm-hmm. and like compare, contrast it to a pillar classic by a white author. Like, I don't want to just suggest that this book is like just a great alternative to To Kill a Mockingbird or just a great pairing for it. Like, it's doing mm-hmm. so much on its own. And in its own tradition and its own form of storytelling. Um, but the teacher in me is like, what's going on here? <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a book we should be reading. And it's exactly like you said, it's not just the the mature content, which to me, like I can just because banned books have been so on the mind, I can so see a lot of parents who would go, this is too scary or this is too mature or this is too traumatizing for kids to read. Well, the kids in the book are between like nine and 14 years old and they experience this horrific trauma. Right. I think, and they experienced it with the loving guidance of their parents. Mm-hmm. I sure think that a nine-year-old kid with the loving guidance of a parent or a teacher can handle learning about this devastating history because these kids back then had to experience it and still experience violent racism now. And so it it's not the mature content that's like, oh, well, adults should read this or whatever. It is just that the storytelling is so good. The writing is so good. It is descriptive. It is literary. Totally get Jasmine Ward vibes from this book. I mean, I can just think of so many literary greats. And as I was prepping for this episode and I was kind of like searching for some articles about this book, there is just not a whole lot out there. Mm. Um, And that's not to say that it's not a classic. It's got like a 40th anniversary edition. I think it's still very much in the canon of the classroom, but there just, there just was not as much. And it just makes me want more for this amazing book. Well, yeah. I mean, if there's not a lot of scholarship about it, that Mm -hmm. might be one of the reasons it hasn't ended up maybe in the classroom as much or in the high school classroom, because I feel like there is that attitude of, you know, the books you study in school end up being the books you teach a lot of the time or that seeing articles being published about a book lend that book a a weightiness and a worthiness. Um, So yeah, I, I, 
I can see that. And I, I also just, I think to your point about the hard things, I think, you know, there are hard things happening in a lot of classics and children's classics that are written by white Mm -hmm. authors. And there's like a safety in the character's whiteness, like Mm -hmm. in Scout's whiteness in To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a safety there. And I think that's an important maybe conversation to even bring into the, the classroom or into your home if you read To Kill a Mockingbird and pair it with something with Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, like the difference in, in like, what a great way to teach tone, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the difference in the tones of these books because of who the characters are, who the, who's telling the story. Um, anyways, we've just, we've talked so much now about why, <laughs> why this book should be so much more widely read. And I do want to say like, maybe this book is more widely read. Like my edition had a foreword by Jacqueline Woodson. And she talked about um, reading the Logan books over and Mm. over and over and them influence her. So, you know, it was not widely read in my white educational experience, which is Mm -hmm. not to say it is not widely read in other people's lives and experiences. And, and so I loved it. I'm so glad I read it. Uh, Mm. and that we brought it to the podcast. Let's talk about these characters that we absolutely fell in love with. Um, who stood out to you, Sarah? Well, I loved little man so much. Yeah. And I think maybe (laughs) little man like filled, filled a little hole in my heart that, um, I was hoping a return to A Wrinkle in Time would fill because I remember loving precocious Charles Wallace so much as a kid and finding him annoying this time. But Little Man was like, he was, he was the like child of my heart. I loved him so, so much. His fastidiousness, his um, commitment to his family and to learning and he really just was a little man. <laughs> I loved him. I know. Oh, goodness. The way that he was like so precious about everything being clean mm-hmm. and tidy. And I I know that Cassie is the narrator. And gosh, I mean, I certainly adored her and was so rooting for her. And she has some really triumphant moments in this book that I loved. It's not all terrifying. Like this is, yeah. I know that we talked about this book being mature and like, yes, it is scary. Um, but there are such moments of triumph and victory and, and joy love in and this humor. book as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it balances all of those things well, in my view. And Cassie gets a lot of the triumph, I think. And I loved, I just loved seeing her relationship with her father. I don't know. I mean, certainly reading this as a parent was different because I paid way closer attention to the parents than I ever would have while reading this as a kid. Just just the way that they were so loving. Mm-hmm. This is the most loving family. So loving. And they there's so much respect granted to their children and believing mm-hmm. what their kids say and um validating their experiences and their emotional 
responses to those experiences. I, yeah, they, parents were great. And watching their struggle with how much do we tell the kids so that they are safe and so that they are protected with knowledge versus how much do we shield them from the world so that they are protected and safe in a different way? Um, and how do we balance building up their self-esteem with these harsh realities that they're going to have to face and not wanting to crush them? Just like watching the parents have to grapple with how much do we tell the kids? What do we reveal to them and when? Are they old enough to know this? And seeing like, you know, they did, they treat Stacy a little bit differently. He is the oldest. He is a boy. And then Cassie, and they start to have some trickle down to tell her some things, and she hears some things from Stacy instead. And then the little ones are a little bit more like in the dark, shielded from this. Just like watching um, mother and father like navigate those things of like, when do I tell my kid about this? And when do I give an honest answer instead of brushing it off? That felt simultaneously like such a universal experience for parenting and for being a kid and such a very specific experience to the black community in raising kids and having those, having quote, the talk, um, with them that white parents don't have to share with their white kids. Um, it, there's just that tug and pull felt, like I said, so simultaneously, so universal and so specific that, Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes about literature that actually is Jacqueline Woodson, again, where she says, the more specific we are, the more universal something can become. Life is in the details. If you generalize, it doesn't resonate. The specificity of it is what resonates. And, you know, I think she's she's talking more broadly about fiction than, than even thinking about like identity and in, in books. But I I think that, you know, one thing that you and I have talked so much about and that I think is happening in a larger educational context, and now we're seeing the reaction to that is so for so long, the white experience and white literature has been seen as the universal. And I I think the pushback against that in the classroom is so important and, and making a lot of teachers and parents really uncomfortable. But, um, I think this, this book kind of encapsulates a lot of that where there is, there are so many entry points and touchstones for, for readers across experiences while still, you know, being both a window and a mirror book, depending on who's reading it. It's just, it's, it's just so well done. So I recently read Finally Seen by Kelly Yang. Fabulous middle grade book. I talk about it in a recent Patreon episode. We'll link to that in the show notes. So good. Highly recommend. I loved this book. If you are not a middle grade reader, you don't need to be to enjoy it. Um, but she uses the uh, metaphor of windows and sliding glass doors instead okay, of windows and mirrors. sliding glass doors, but I've... Explain the metaphor to me. Well, I, so I did not do any research on this. Um, this is just me kind of reflecting and wondering what this means. So we'll, we'll see if we can find anything 
um, to include, but I, I did think it was really interesting that she kept using that. And it was brought up a couple of different times in the book. To me, I think a sliding glass door represents opportunity to open the door and step into someone else's life or to join them. Um, and to witness something that is going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe she's maybe she said mirrors and sliding glass doors. It wasn't just windows. So instead of just a window where you are purely observing, a sliding glass door is something more active. Mm-hmm. There's there's opportunity there. There's something actionable that you can do after you see someone's life. You can go and join them. You can go and make a friend. You can um, I don't know. There's there's something different about the experience there, the it's, it's to me, it's something about like, there's, there's more opportunity there. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look into it a little further, but I, I thought it was really striking and it's definitely something that has been on my mind while reading Roll of Thunder, You're My Cry, um, which for me would be a sliding glass door book rather than a mirror book. I really like that because I get uncomfortable with the idea of like stepping into somebody's shoes through mm-hmm. literature because I think that's overly simplistic and just not reality. Like you can, it's very true that reading fiction can cultivate empathy, but just because you read a book from somebody else's perspective, it's not the same thing as inhabiting that perspective. So when I had seen some of the sliding glass door, I was like, is that verging into that. But I love what you've said about an invitation in of being alongside of that active piece of, of, of being with. So I really like that. I'm going to have to read the finally seen. Finally seen. I, I think that this is a middle grade, um, that you would enjoy Sarah. The other piece that I'm thinking about now with a sliding glass door, I think that this is really go digging into the metaphor, but there's an element of like, you have to open the door mm-hmm. in order to see clearly and opening that door might be recognizing your own biases, um, doing some work to get some historical context. Um, like there is effort involved mm-hmm. in that, that reading rather than just looking through a window, opening a door, like there is effort there. There is there's action there where you are reading and you are actually like doing something. And so, and that's an important part, I think of the, the reading experience rather than just like looking and taking it in and observing. Um, I think having some sort of action there is important. Okay. Sarah, why, why do you think Cassie makes the best narrator here other than knowing that Mildred D. Taylor was writing from her own experience and, you know, with her personal relationship with her father, I think there's that element of, you know, it was easy for her to access this nine-year-old girl. But other than that, like narratively, what makes Cassie such a, a good narrator here? It's such a good question. And I am curious if the other Logan books, do you know if the other Logan books are all through Cassie's perspective or if they shift around? 
I don't know. And I know that I think the most recent one like came up fairly recently. So So. that's so cool. Well, I mean, I, I think that part of the way I think about questions like this is how would the book be different if it were told through another character's perspective? And I think the, the, the first one my mind goes to is Stacy. And I think the book would be totally different if it was told through Stacy's perspective. He's, he's older. He maybe has more of an understanding of the racism around him, the realities his family is dealing with. He definitely has more of that connection to um, his friend TJ who becomes instrumental and in, as the plot goes on. Whereas Cassie, I think we get to learn alongside her a little bit more. She is, is not witnessing some of these things, but, but she's approaching an age where, like you said, her parents are sharing more with her. She gets to be a little bit of a um, student of life in that sense, learning from Stacy and her parents. But with her younger brothers, she's also kind of a teacher to them and then to the reader along the way as well. Um, I also just think that her, her like uh, ferociousness makes her a great narrator, like her sense of justice and right and wrong. Like we really get to feel that alongside her. And so I, I think her her age from a very like kind of practical point of view, but, but the qualities that Taylor imbues her with also make her an exceptional narrator. We do kind of get dual coming of age narratives here because of because of the role Stacy plays in the book, like we're seeing him grow into a man and we're seeing his, you know, that like going through puberty and adolescence that Cassie just hasn't reached yet. And there is something that happens because of society and because of girls um, where I, I do think that nine-year-old age is really essential where she still has like the fire is fully lit mm-hmm. and her parents encourage it. Um, and yeah, this, I kept thinking as I was reading about all of our readers in Classics Club who love coming of age stories so much. And this is such a good one. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I would also read this book from Stacy's perspective. <laughs> it would be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, t- obviously a totally different book. It would. I feel like it would be a much more YA book because of his mm-hmm. age, but also because of kind of the more of the, the view he gets of the story as it continues on and probably the choices he's having to make and wrestling with internally. Um, but- I, yeah, I love the, I love the choice of, of Cassie and I loved, and, and again, with the specificity, sometimes my struggle with, with middle grade and YA is sometimes I feel like the protagonists are kind of blank canvases for good reason. I think, you know, for kids to kind of cast themselves into, but Cassie is not a blank canvas. She is a very memorable character and narrator in her own right. And I, I love that. What are a couple of the scenes that really will stick with you? Well, I know this is like the first scene. (laughs) It's very early on, but when the teacher hands out the books and little man gets so upset, realizing that, you know, 
there's just this list of how many times the book has been used and the race of the student who Mm -hmm. received the book. And, you know, the quality of the book goes from new to poor over like a decade. And only when it's in poor condition, does it, do these books get handed down, passed over to the, uh, the black school or the black students and his, his sense of fairness, it just felt so true to, to kids. Um, and I, I thought it, I mean, that scene like (laughs) was really like shook me emotionally. And I just thought it was also narratively such a smart way to introduce or like kind of wade into the themes of, of racism and racial injustice that she continues to explore in the book, because I feel like that's just something kids can so understand the, the inequity of that. Um, so I thought it was narratively quite brilliant and uh, very emotional as well. Mm. I think I- there are three moments or three kind of like themes. Um, one is when mama gets fired from her teaching position and she gets home and she just like walks out into the fields and Cassie wants to go follow her and make her feel better. And Papa's like, mm, no, honey, she needs to be by herself. Teaching is a part of that woman more than anything. And she loves it almost as much as she loves you all. And oh my goodness, my heart was just breaking. Oh, that moment was such a gut punch. And then um, I think any, I mean, Cassie and her dad having conversations, like the wisdom and just the love that you feel being passed on from father to daughter was like those sweet moments. I also like, I love the Christmas scene when they're feasting together. I like when the whole family's together. I love all of those family scenes. Um, they're so warm and inviting. Um, like you feel like you, you know, they would invite you to be a guest at their table. Um, And then another thing that really stood out to me on this reading was how complex Mildred D. Taylor wrote some of these relationships in the novel between white characters and black characters and never oversimplifies them for her young audience. Mm -hmm. Um, In about a page and a half, she has Mama summarize the history of systemic racism (laughs) for Cassie brilliantly. Mm in a page and a half. And I was like, she just did, she just told the whole history. Like she just summed it right up. Um, but then also like the parents are trying to explain to the kids, like why a friendship with, uh, the young white boy might not work. Um, and he is like trying to be friends with them. Right. And I, I think in perhaps a white author's hands, um, or a white editor's hands, this could have gone awry and it could have been the story of like white savior complex. Um, they're, well, look, they can be friends. Everybody can be friends, but no, the kids, the kids kind of shun him. They stay away from him. They're wary of him because of everything that's happening and it feels real Mm -hmm. and it is more complicated. Um, and kids can handle that complication. 
And then there's the um, the white lawyer. He is not written in here as a white savior either. I just think the uh, the complexities of some of these interracial relationships stood out to me on on this reading. But mostly any scene where the family is together and you feel just the warmth and love emanating from them. I also love well, the scene where they um, flood the road so the, the bus mm-hmm. gets stuck. And, but the scene like immediately following where like, you know, the parents are talking about like, what did you do? What happened? And the kids are just like brimming <laughs> yes. with giggles because it, I don't know. It was just unexpected to me. I was like, oh, is, are they going to start worrying that they're going to get in trouble? But yeah. the joy and the humor and you could just feel that like that, yeah, that experience where you know you have to hold in your laughter, but you can't and you're trying. Yeah. To, it's, it was so good. So, Sarah, we've been asking this question about each children's classic that we've read so far. And I I think it's essential to ask it again. What does this book have to say about being a kid or about childhood? It's it's interesting. I mean, I feel like in a very, very different way, this book is doing something a little bit similar to the golden compass where it's toying with the ideas of innocence and experience. And that that's a lot of what it's saying about being a kid that, you know, at at different ages, at different times for different kids in different circumstances, but on this cusp of needing to know more about the realities of the world around you. Um, and having to leave behind some of the the safety. But what I love about this book is that it points out the necessity of the soft landing place of the family, the home, or, you know, at, at the very least a found family. In this book, it is very much a family, but just that foundation of love that can guide you safely relatively safely from innocence into experience and make it less scary or at least like you don't have to bear the burden alone. So yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if that really answers the question of what it says about childhood, but I think that's one of the themes of childhood that it's it's exploring. I love that. I think somewhat related, there is a a, an element of childhood or an element of coming of age where you realize that your parents can't solve all the problems in the world mm-hmm. and you realize that they're not perfect superheroes. Mm-hmm. I think we really see that here. Um, and almost like there's a point in your life where you you start to have a different relationship with your parents from strictly like caregiver to confidant a little bit, um, where, you know, Cassie's parents are starting to have different kinds of conversations with her, but just, especially at the beginning of the book, we see how much the kids just idolize both of their parents. Mama covers up the, 
the books um, at school, problem solved. These books are like new. They've got brand new covers for you. I fixed it. Papa swoops in from his railroad job and they're so excited to see him. And he's the hero of their house. Um, And the kids want them to be heroes for the community too, but there are limits. Um, And I, I think there is, there is this element of being a kid and a coming of age. Like this is quintessential coming of age novel, right? Where you start to realize your parents are imperfect people and they cannot solve everything. And then there's that piece like you were talking about where, but they can love you as hard as they possibly can Mm -hmm. in the meantime. There's nothing overly simplified in this, in this book. And I think that is in addition to the gorgeous writing, which we didn't even really get time to, to gush about, but um, that makes it feel like very much crossover adult, not like adults who don't typically read middle grade could very much read and love this one. So, but it does have so much to say about childhood in a really lovely way. Sarah, I'm really eager to hear your pairings for Rule of Thunder, Hear My Cry. So I have two. Well, we both have two. That's what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) My first one is Stealing by Margaret Verbal, which just came out earlier this year. And I, I guess I've just been thinking a lot about how things get classified because this book is told through the perspective of an 11 or 12 year old, but it is adult fiction. Um, it is about a young girl named Kit. She is her father's white, her mother's Cherokee, but her mother has, has died. And, um, through like a really tragic chain of events, she gets taken away from her family and put into a a private Christian residential school. And she experiences horrors there and so many, so many content warnings for, for this book. Um, handle, I mean, I wouldn't hand this book to a middle schooler by any means, but still because it's told through a child's perspective, things are, they're just told in a certain narrative style that makes it different than reading about these kinds of things told from an adult or from a third person omniscient narrator. But like Kit's um, determinedness and ferocity reminded me of Cassie and Kit was just, she, she is not, she is not going to remain at the school. She has a plan. And I think that's the other thing that that kind of made me feel like this, this book stealing had some things in common with middle grade versus, you know, again, don't, don't give this to your middle school, (laughs) (laughs) but, but that determinist and her, like, she was going, she's going to figure this out. That sort of optimism was refreshing to read mm-hmm. in a book about really, really horrible things. Um, I really, really enjoyed this book. The tie goes, the timeline goes back and forth between um, Kit being in the school and then telling you about the lead up about how, what happened for her to be taken from her family. Um, and 
she, her parents are not as great. Well, we don't get to meet her mom. Her dad is not as great as a papa, but he, he wants to be, he wants to be. And, um, her extended family is, is really wonderful. And, and so, yeah. So stealing by Margaret Verbal, because it's largely because of that Kit Cassie connection. What's your first pick? My pairing's actually a little adjacent to yours. I think the Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead pairs excellently with this book. Mm-hmm. In particular, when you're thinking about Stacy and TJ and just like the nervousness I have for their future, especially TJ. Mm-hmm. When he starts hanging out with the white boys who he thinks are palling around with him, but they are actually mocking him and they get him in big trouble. And towards the end of the book, I, oh, my heart was just breaking for TJ and just knowing what was coming for him. The Nickel Boys is about um, primarily two young black men who are sentenced to just a reform school from hell in 1960s Florida. Um, not all that far removed from 1930s Mississippi, where um, Roll of Thunder references the chain gang and just like all of the horrible places where TJ could be sent if he's not lynched. Um, And so uh, the Nickel Boys is about Elwood Curtis. And he is like, he's got this really loving uh, grandmother. He's going to enroll in the black college. He's, he's like set his sights on education and bettering himself. And then he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it all goes to shit. (laughs) And he is sent to the Nickel Academy, um, which is basically a prison. Um, And while there he is, he suffers horrible abuse and trauma. Um, and he also meets, um, his new friend Turner and they have kind of opposing worldviews and Turner is a lot more like cynical. Um, and there's just like this tension between the two of them. And I could really see that with Stacy and TJ. Um, and, Yeah. So this also is not a book I would hand to a middle schooler, but I do think that it's in conversation with Roll of Thunder here, my cry. Um, Yeah. So The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, not as joyful and triumphant and warm as Roll of Thunder here, my cry, but I kept thinking about TJ and The Nickel Boys. And I do think that his trajectory pairs well there. Mm -hmm. Very much so. What a great book. I wish that I had more <laughs> joyful, triumphant middle grade two pair with this one because it it does deserve it. Um, and maybe our listeners who are um, even more avid middle graders will share some additional ones because my second pairing, really my second pairing is Jacqueline Woodson, the author and anything mm, yeah. by her. Because she's, I mean, she wrote in this forward how influenced she was by Roll of Thunder, by Mildred D. Taylor, just the source of inspiration she drew from from this well. I think if you haven't read or listened to on audio her verse memoir, um, Brown Girl Dreaming, Mm, it is so good. good. 
it's uh, the story of her life um, growing up in South Carolina and like the late sixties and, and early seventies and kind of the, the, the remnants of Jim Crow South that she faced in her, her experience and her finding joy in language and, and books. It's so good. Um, but I also want to pair specifically another Brooklyn with, with this because of that, that same, like, you know, reintroducing adults to what it feels like to be a child or in this case, a young teenager. So another Brooklyn is narrated by, um, August. It takes place in Brooklyn in the 1970s. And I think the sense of place, obviously this is a completely different setting, but the sense of place is so strong in Roll of Thunder and Jacqueline Woodson creates an equally strong sense of place in another Brooklyn in her 1970s Brooklyn setting. And August has these three close friends um, who she is, you know, growing up with and trying to avoid some of the trappings of, of womanhood and really just, you know, trying to make it safely into adulthood with her best friends and the the struggles there, the way they support and hurt each other at the same time, really beautifully done. And again, not a not a um, definitely not a middle grade book, not a young adult novel, but one that I actually did teach in high school and phenomenal book to to read with teenagers. Um, and the writing is is stunning, and it's a novella. It's under two hundred pages, so. I think in the same way that middle grade books can do so much emotionally within the confines of their genre, a novella is kind of working in similar ways to do a lot emotionally in not very many pages. So anything by Jacqueline Woodson, but I guess specifically Brown Girl Dreaming and Another Brooklyn. So I had three. I cheated. Yeah, you did. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of have three too, just because I think... If uh, any listeners haven't read Not Without Laughter by Langston Hughes, um, our community loved that coming of age story. And I think that that pairs really well here too. So you can go and listen to that episode. I'm pretty sure we keep it spoiler free um, and highly recommend reading Not Without Laughter by Langston Hughes. But my official other pairing is Claudette Colvin, Twice Towards Justice by Philip Hoos. And this is, I think it's about like a fifth or sixth grade reading level. But I taught this book with my ninth graders a couple of times and they loved it. So this is a book um, Philip who's interviewed and worked really closely with Claudette Colvin while she was still living to tell her story. And this is a book that goes into um, some of the background of the Jim Crow South and the civil rights movement and Brown versus the Board of Education and a couple of other important cases in civil rights history and Claudette Colvin, who is an unsung hero of the civil rights movement. And her story is just much lesser known. So we, we know Rosa Parks and how she played such a significant role in bus boycotts, but Claudette Colvin actually refused to give up her seat on the bus before Rosa Parks did. And she was 15 years old. So this is a triumphant story of 
how adolescence can make a big difference in the world. Um, the main reason that Claudette's story wasn't told is they just didn't think that she was like the right face for the movement because at 16 years old, she got pregnant and they were like, we cannot have a pregnant 16 year old be our civil rights leader. And Rosa Parks, who like closely mentored Claudette Colvin, stepped up. Um, that's simplifying the story. There's much more to it, but this is a great book to read as an adult, just to like get that history lesson. But also I think it pairs really well with Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry as a classroom text. So I think reading Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, you get that 1930s background and history. And then Claudette Colvin like rolls into the civil rights movement and, a, and transitions really great and still focuses on the, the young people of the movement. So highly recommend the book in general, really loved teaching it, but I think it's, it's a great pairing for Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it's nonfiction, really well-told, great storytelling. So that is Claudette Colvin, Twice Towards Justice by Philip Hoos. All right, listeners. Well, we are excited to continue our conversation about Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, with our Patreon literature scholars. We'll be having a book club discussion of this incredible classic at the end of the month, and it is not too late to join. So head to patreon.com slash novel pairings and support our show at the $8 per month literature scholar level to join us for that conversation to get access to our entire back catalog of classes and to be the first to know about future classes for this semester and beyond for announcements and important updates from us subscribe to novelpairings.substack.com and follow novel pairings pod on instagram if you would like to support our show in a really quick, simple, free way, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or send a link to a bookish friend. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next, we'll be back to share our most anticipated new book releases this spring. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. 